Additional support for Heat Treat Radio is provided by Dry Coolers. Dry Coolers designs and builds industrial cooling systems for manufacturers with in-house heat treat operations, as well as commercial heat treaters and other companies outside the heat treat industry. If you're looking for customized or standardized industrial cooling systems, contact Dry Coolers on the web at www.drycoolers.com. On this episode of Heat Treat Radio, we're headed to coal country, just outside Wheeling, West Virginia, to talk to Brian Joseph, founder, CEO, and president of Touchstone Research Laboratories, as well as several other companies pertinent to the heat treat industry. If you thought coal was a commodity of the past, I suggest you buckle up for one of the most interesting heat treat radio episodes that will widely expand your appreciation for coal and its future uses in the heat treat industry. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Heat Treat Radio. I'm your host, Doug Glenn, publisher of Heat Treat Today, and I would just like to say that this episode of Heat Treat Radio is one of my favorites. I was introduced to Brian Joseph by Heat Treat Today's lead editor, Karen Ganser, who just happens to be a relative of Brandon Robinson, a young, very sharp engineer working for one of Brian Joseph's companies, Touchstone Advanced Composites. Brian and Brandon hosted both Karen and I at their campus in Triadelphia, West Virginia, earlier this year, and were gracious enough to spend an entire afternoon showing us around and talking with us about some of the exceptionally fascinating esoteric work they're doing for all sorts of world-leading companies in aerospace, defense, energy, as well as a host of other government agencies and national labs. I think think you'll find this episode fascinating, and I bet you're going to learn something new about coal. But before we travel down to By Gum, West Virginia, let's let's take a quick trip over to Heat Treat Today's website, where every day you can find one new heat treat item, either a news item uh, or a new technical article. Our editors are busy working with a large number of industry experts and suppliers to curate the best heat treat information on the web. And if I may say so myself, we are all very excited here at Heat Treat Today about our upcoming annual automotive heat treating edition, which will hit the streets in mid-June. We have some great editorial content lined up for that issue and you'll be able to see uh, some of it on our website between now and June. Also, we hear from a lot of people that organizations are losing their heat treat expertise due to retirements. If your company finds itself in that situation where you need heat treat help but don't have the horsepower internally to handle it, please turn to Heat Treat Today and our comprehensive list of heat treat consultants. You'll find the industry's only list of heat treat consultants by going to heattreattoday.com slash consultants. Or you can simply Bing or Google heat treat consultants and we should be the first thing that pops up. But enough about heat treat today. Let's get back to today's guest, Brian Joseph. Hi, my name's Brian Joseph. I'm the president, CEO, and founder of Touchstone Research Laboratory, 
as well as Touchstone Advanced Composites, Touchstone Testing Laboratory, and Seafoam Limited. Brian, thanks for agreeing to this interview, and let's get started by having you tell us about yourself and your companies. Sounds great. So I grew up in the northern panhandle of West Virginia and uh, went to a local university, West Liberty University, and then did a little bit of graduate work at Ohio State. I then uh, started my own business. So I've never, I've never had a job. So I've only owned my own business, and uh, and that's Touchstone Research Laboratory. And uh, at Touchstone, we invent things. Um, we invent all kinds of things. Put out sometimes a patent a month. And then we spin businesses out. We've spun out uh, three businesses in the last three years, I think. And uh, we have probably three more uh, in the works today. Right, right. And your, your markets, if I remember correctly, Brian, you're, you're, in the air, you're doing stuff for the aerospace industry, automotive industry. What, what other major markets are you hitting on? Oh, yeah, sort of, sort of everything. So, so, as you can envision, in an innovative company like Touchstone Research Laboratory, we, it's far-ranging. So we do a lot of work in aerospace. We do work in automotive. We do work in just general manufacturing. We, we're inventing all kinds of things all the time. And then our spin-out companies, um, we'll just walk through those for a second. Touchstone Testing Laboratory has three locations. I, I'm, I'm very excited. We do a lot of aerospace testing for virtually every aerospace company uh, in, in at those facilities, and um, so that's so that tests all kinds of materials that Touchstone testing. Then we spun out Seafoam, which is probably what we'll t- talk mostly about today. This is a, a foam we make from coal. So in the research lab, we do a lot of coal to products research, mm-hmm. and this is a foam that's extremely strong and really high temperature. And we'll talk more about that. Um, mm-hmm. So that that's been out, um, and that's by the way that's a publicly traded company today on the Australian stock exchange. Mm-hmm. And then we spun out, and, and and by the way, the applications for that are in numerous markets. Uh, one of which is in heat treating. Right. Um, and then and then the third business is called Touchstone Advanced Composites. Touchstone Advanced Composites manufacture takes the foam that Seafoam makes and builds the molds for next-generation uh, carbon fiber airplanes, rockets. Many of these are, are companies you would recognize, all the big aerospace companies, all the, all the commercial launches to space. We work with virtually everyone to build the molds to make their carbon fiber parts, and we right. do that on coal, which is, I think, sort of surprising to people. Yes, yes, and in fact, that's I, I, I get a, I get a smile on my face. I kind of get tickled about this because this is what I want to kind of tease our audience with, if you will, a little bit. Is coal all right? The place of coal in heat treat. Where where might we find it currently, if if at all? And in your mind, because I know you're a, a very much a forward thinker, where do you see coal? being used in the heat treat market, if you will, or even outside, maybe even outside the heat treat market in the, in the future? Wow. So t- today, the, the big uses for coal are electricity. So make electricity to, to run kilns and things. Sure. Um, in steel making, the coke for steel making, that makes a lot of sense. In c- cement production, we often burn coal to, to heat the cement, and that's, that's current uses. Right. Now, so... What's the future? 
Oh man. It's so here's the thing I think about Cole. Here's here's how, so many years ago when I was a kid, there was this basketball player. His name was Lou Al Cinder. And and he was dunking the basketball at will and just dominating uh college basketball. So they outlawed it. They just said, Oh, nobody's allowed to dunk anymore. <laughs> and you and in general, you you'd think, oh, that would be devastating. But yeah. no, he just invents a, 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 a special uh, hook shot called the, the his, they call it the sky sky hook. Yeah. Now all of a sudden he can score from twenty feet out at will. Uh-huh. And he become one of the highest scorers in basketball. To me, that's what's going on in Cole right now. We're the the things that it's dominating today that is its primary markets are under a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. But when I look out, what do I think is going to happen? A huge number of products. So let me tell you what we're doing right now. So we take the coal in the seafoam business, they grind it into powder, and they heat it under pressure, and they blow it up into this beautiful black foam. Mm-hmm. Think, think styrofoam, only a thousand times stronger and good to enormously high temperatures, like um, probably up to 3,000 Celsius. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could be used at really high temperature. So what are we using it for today? Over at Touchstone Advanced Composites, they're working, they're building the molds to make these carbon fiber airplane parts because mm-hmm. the foam is high temperature, so it'll go in the autoclave. It's very strong. Um, it also does not expand and contract hardly at all with changes in temperature, and that's what you want in the mm-hmm. best mold-making material. So what, what I get a kick out of is you take coal out of the ground, and all of a sudden, we're making parts for the James Webb Space Telescope. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can, we can go into more detail about that in a little bit if you want. But then um, um, where else will it be used? Wow, anywhere you could think of a really high temperature. Just imagine styrofoam a thousand times stronger and fireproof. Right. Where would you use it? Well, everywhere. So when I think, when I think heat treatment, where, where do I think the obvious applications are? Film furniture, mm-hmm. um, yep. the, the strength of this stuff, compressive strength um, of the low density material is over a thousand pounds per square inch. Mm-hmm. Um, in kiln insulation because it, it's very insulating, uh, especially kiln floors because here's now all of a sudden you've got a carbon floor you could walk on that's an insulator, and by the way the higher density material that we that they make. It has a compressive strength so high you could set a car on one square inch and it wouldn't crush. So, I mean, we're talking really, really high strength. So, um, so kiln furniture, the, the, the floors, um, you can pass electricity through it and use it as the heating element. And uh-huh. we've yeah. done that at times. Right. Um, I can envision someone building, building some... Uh, kilns where you lay it up like you do refractory brick today, only a carbon version of refractory brick. Right. Um, uh, now, one of one of the other ones you, we don't typically think about, and this, you know, is this in the heat treatment area? I don't know. It's sort of interesting. Um, Seafoam has a program with Argonne National Laboratory. So, so Argonne is working on solar, a concentrated solar power. So, what is that? Uh, this is the thousands of mirrors in the desert that reflect light up to a single point, and then that heats a fluid, and it goes underground, and it melts like a salt, like 
sodium chloride, like the stuff you eat, or magnesium chloride. So it actually takes that, and and so you're at over 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. So the problem, the salt's a great material to hold the heat, but it's a really bad material to conduct the heat. So what mm-hmm. what we're doing is we're taking the we're taking the salt, putting it in the pores of the foam. And then using the the ligaments of the of the coal foam to conduct the heat mm-hmm. to store the energy in the um, in the salt. And again, what I like about that is we're going to store solar power in coal, which is again <laughs> counterintuitive. Yeah, and a yeah. bit of an irony, huh? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's I think you're going to see these carbon foams everywhere. Yeah, uh, it's very very interesting. When we think in the heat treat industry, we certainly don't think about uh, using coal. But in some of these new applications, like you say, being pressed in their major markets, whether it's energy production and things of that sort, there are new applications and, and Touchstone Research Labs is developing some of these things. So that's, to me, what is what is kind of interesting. Let's talk outside of heat treat for just a minute. And I want to I prime you on one of them. And then if you think of others, feel free to run with them. We spoke previously, Brian, you and I spoke previously about the use of coal as structural, architectural structures uh, in the future in place of uh, concrete structures. Can you hit on that a little bit? And then if there's anything else outside of the, the thermal part of, uh, of coal being used outside the heat treat industry, just go ahead and roll right into those. Okay, yeah. So, so we're working with a gentleman named uh, Mark Goldthorpe. He is a, an architect at MIT. Mm-hmm. He, has a pro, he has a program called Carbon House with the Department of Energy, uh, specifically, it's an ARPA-E program. That's the real sort of advanced technology area. And he presents this this story. He says, um, the world population has been increasing at a very high rate of speed, but the wealth around the world hasn't really, didn't spread around the world for a long time. So many of those people didn't have much money. They didn't make much. They didn't buy much. So we didn't notice them so much. But what's happened in the last 20 years maybe the greatest accomplishment of man in the last 20 years is we've reduced that extreme poverty 80% worldwide, which is just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden, uh, the good, the, the complex part of this is these people are moving to cities at a rate of a million people a week. Mm. Now that means inside 30 years, we will need to double the number of houses and buildings on the surface of the earth inside 30 years. This construction boom has already started. Imagine you've got to build a, a million, I'll say, apartments and, and uh, office building offices and things every week till after the year 2050. So he points out, what are we going to build all this out of? Well, um, there's not enough wood on this planet. Um, you right. can't use concrete. I mean, if we're concerned about uh, global climate change and and that uses that puts out more carbon dioxide than burning coal. So what are our options? And he points out that the answer is probably buried in our hydrocarbons, mm-hmm. things like um, methane to to um, 
uh, carbon nanotubes where we take the carbons and the methane and we make carbon nanotubes and that'll be part of the structure and take the hydrogen and make that the fuel. And I think that's at MIT what they're thinking the future is. And seafoam will probably pay a, play a major role in these kind of structures because at the end of the day, the coal that we make the, the foam from is very inexpensive, available in extraordinarily large quantity, and can make fireproof structures that are inexpensive and with a pretty low carbon footprint. The production of the foam is a very small carbon footprint production. It, it does not produce uh, much pollution or production right. of much CO2, that kind of thing. Right. So it's a fairly green, it's funny to talk about coal in a green way, but it, it really is a pretty green product. And that's maybe the thing that gets us there. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think compared, to, compared to the uh, manufacturing of concrete, right? I mean, the point is it's a lot greener manufacturing the seafoam panels, let's say, as opposed to concrete. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, sort of, sort of some fun things let's talk about for just a minute. Um, over at Touchstone Advanced Composites, they, they, um, they've made um, the molds to make parts for the James Webb Space Telescope. Mm-hmm. This, is the, this will be the greatest telescope I think the world has ever produced. This is, uh, I think it's eight times bigger than Hubble. It'll be located a million miles from Earth and just for everybody to have a little yardstick that's uh, four times the distance to the moon. Um, okay. And it will be, um, it will see back in time um, um, till to the creation of some of the first galaxies. Mm-hmm. And we're doing that. We made all these parts uh, on molds made from coal. Mm-hmm. Um, we just finished building the, the, the molds to make the, communications dish antenna for the NASA Wide Field Infrared Telescope, uh, which is the size of Hubble, and that's going up here soon. We just finished uh, the structures that will be on a solar sail for NASA. So let me tell you what a solar sail is. This is a neat thing. So um, imagine a kite, only square. And so there's two sticks on a kite. Now, we're going to make those out of carbon fiber. We're going to make them in a special way that collapse, and they go into a box two by two feet. But when you, when you get up into space, you open this box up, and this rolls out 54 and a half feet in all directions. So you end up with this 110-foot-ish um, um, um sail that's up in space, this solar sail. And what's going to happen is the the light from the sun moves this thing, just the light, no propellant. It'll go 240,000 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And we built all the molds on coal. Mm-hmm. Um, so the seafoam that we make from coal. Um, we do work with um, virtually every one of the commercial launches to space. We're building, we just did the front end of a supersonic aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's and dozens of other new aircraft that, that are being built. All that's being done on the on on seafoam. So that's a that's a whole group of fun things we do. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Brian Joseph of Touchstone Research Laboratories about a really interesting 
non-coal development in the area of aluminum. Brace yourself to learn about the world's strongest aluminum. But before we get there, I'd like to give a shout out to Dry Coolers, who has been a constant partner with Heat Treat Today and Heat Treat Radio. In the heat treat industry, the name Dry Coolers has become synonymous with high quality industrial cooling and heat recovery systems. Brian and Margie Russell, along with their team of experts like Matt Reed and Gary Berwick, can custom design systems for specific applications if they don't already have a standard off-the-shelf system. If you have a vacuum furnace, induction units, quenching needs, or if you need a system for cooling hydraulic oil, dry coolers can help. They can also help with chillers and glycol cooling systems. And they have systems for nearly every temperature range known to the industrial world, including heat recovery systems in the 700F range, heat exchangers in the 100F range, cooling towers in the 85 degree F range, and chiller systems. If you need cooled off, Dry Coolers is for you. If you want to go to their website, that would be drycoolers.com. Or you can call them at 800-525-8173. You can also drop them an email at info at drycoolers.com. But I suggest you email me instead and I'll put you directly in touch with a real person. You can email me at doug at heattreattoday.com. All right, now let's get back to our interview with Brian Joseph, and let's talk a bit about the world's strongest aluminum. There's one other that I wanted to ask you about, too, and that if you're, if you're free to talk about this, which I'm assuming you are, is Metpreg. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. So, in Touchstone Research Laboratory, thank you for, um, for asking about that. We're developing the world's strongest aluminum, so this is aluminum with fibers in it. It's aluminum oxide fibers in aluminum. But what's really interesting about it, it's the highest temperature aluminum that exists. So this will be useful at temperatures uh, up to 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. It'll keep like 80% of its strength. It's three times stronger than the world's strongest aluminum alloy. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not made from coal. This is the one thing. This is, this is aluminum with fibers. Okay. Uh, we either make it in, I'll call it a tape form or a pole-truded form, or we make it, um, we'll make it into cylinders by filament winding it like you do polymer composites. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a whole new class of materials, and you know, we're, our plan is to spin that out as a separate company probably within the next year or so. Mm-hmm. So right now we're developing the business plans. We're doing this on scale already. And uh, it's already been put on a ship. One of the applications, by the way, is repairing the structures in large ships. Right. So, especially aluminum hulled ships. Yeah, for yeah, fatigue in particular. And so, um, and some of these ships, they're tracking hundreds of fatigue cracks in the structural components, and we can use this as a patch to repair the ships like while at sea and have a permanent repair. And uh, so we think that's, and by the way, that's an application I wouldn't have even come up with. I mean, that's one that the Navy came to us and said, 
you know, is this something you guys can do? And so we've been working in a development program with the Navy, uh, about a million-dollar program, and we are already, while, while in the program, already on our first ship, and we're really excited about that. I think that part, that application is ready to go. Many of the other applications are still in development. Right. Right. Now, some very, very fascinating stuff. Now, you're maybe uh, I, I got a question for you just about because I think our listeners would be interested. You've already run down a list of some of your customers, but maybe just to give us a sense of the breadth and depth and of of your customer base, as many as you're comfortable telling us about. Yeah, so it's it's um, on the aerospace side, it's, it's virtually everyone in, in aerospace from from your Boeings and Airbuses and uh, and um, uh, Embraer to uh, to some of your smaller ones um, that are I'll say suppliers to that industry. Right. Um, yeah. It's we have um, hundreds and hundreds of people, especially using the CFO. That's right. that's done really really well. Uh, in terms of Metpreg, we're not there yet on flying on airplanes, but. I'm really confident we will get there. We can probably mention the work we do with Virgin. Um, okay. I love I love Richard Branson. By the way, he is uh, he's a hero of mine. I, I think the world of him. Um, and we we've, we've done work with with some of his companies: Virgin Orbital, Virgin Galactic. There are two separate companies. Virgin Galactic is the one that is going to take people into space, and I think. I want to come back. I want to spin back around and talk about what that means, taking people to space. Because the thing we think about is rich people going for joy rides, which right. is good, and that there's a market. Um, don't think of it like that. Think he's think he's building he's building this next generation aircraft that it would just be you take. Let's say we take off from L.A. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just as easy to drop you in Chicago as it would be back to L.A. In fact, I think it's easier. So I see this as the beginnings of a new way to fly around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'll give you another one. that In SpaceX, SpaceX, that, they have a similar vision. Now, SpaceX's um, rockets are very different. They're going to land vertical. Right. So, so Richard Branson's, he's going to look like an airplane. He's going to come in be more normal looking, but they won't go that fast. They'll go, I don't know, a couple thousand miles an hour, maybe. I don't know what their top speed is. But whereas Virgin, they're going to go like 18,000. I'm sorry, um, SpaceX, you know, like 18,000 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I saw the, the president of, of uh, SpaceX give a talk. Um, in fact, by the way, one of our, one of our people got to meet Elon Musk here just to a few weeks ago, and he came back with the biggest grin on his face. But anyway, um, so, so the president of of, uh, of um, SpaceX says, you know, I can't wait till the day when I can fly. I do a lot of business in Riyadh, she says. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait till the day I, I take off from here in California, fly to Riyadh. Um, it'll take about 40 minutes, and most of that's landing. Uh-huh. And then we'll yeah. fly back home. And time to fix dinner for the family, which just made me smile. <laughs> Fixing yeah. dinner for the family. I just crack. You know, she's awesome yeah. uh, in every way. Um, right. So uh, that's an amazing company. Now, Virgin Orbital is different. Virgin Orbital um, shoots rockets up in the air. Um, 
they come they come off the bottom of a uh, Boeing seven forty seven that okay. um, they've named Cosmic Girl, mm-hmm. and then that goes in orbit. Now that does go fast. Not to carry humans, it's to put satellites. It's an inexpensive way to put satellites in orbit. So you can imagine, you fly the 747 as high as you can, you right. tilt it a little bit upwards, and you shoot your rocket right into orbit. So yeah. it's a lot less expensive than launching from the ground. So that's another another one of Richard Branson's businesses, and uh, that's a great team of people they have working there. I'm really optimistic about it, but. The scale of what's going on in space right now, and, and by the way, for your heat treatment people, think about the temperatures we're dealing with. The, the rocket motors are all super high temperature. The, just going through the atmosphere, um, right. it takes you up into the thousands of degrees. So all the things that your, your, your client base works with is what the outside of all these vehicles is. It's just sort of interesting. And yet I think, I don't know that they think in that world right now, but um, when you look at the number of launches going into space right now, uh, we in the U.S. don't track what's going on around the world so much. So I'll give you just one example. Uh, Rocket Lab has what they call the Electron Rocket. It'll be launched from New Zealand. Now, I was unaware that New Zealand ever launched a rocket. It's just not something I was aware of. They're right. planning to launch 300 launches a year in New Zealand. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so wow. what do you think the worldwide going to in and out of space is going to be here in the next decade or two? Things will yeah. be really large. And markets for things like thermal protection systems or high-temperature components right. um, is going to be much bigger, I think, than anyone realizes. Shifting just a little bit, and obviously the organization that you've developed, uh, Touchstone Research Labs and whatnot, uh, your whole organization, all of them have been very innovative. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to the, uh, let's just say the culture there and the method by which you push the innovation? And I guess that's what I'm looking for. How do you make such an innovative organization? Wow. So yeah, you you may have picked up on something now that with that question, because you've been here, you've walked through, you have a feel for for sort of how we work. Right. So I um um I went to I went to um, Dearborn, Michigan once, and I went to the Henry Ford uh, Museum and Greenfield Village. And if anyone's never been there, you've got to go, especially if you like technical things. And um, and there, Henry Ford bought Edison's first research laboratory and rebuilt it there. It's four buildings, so you can walk through the world's first industrial research laboratory. Mm-hmm. So I went there one day about four years ago, and I was not necessarily a big Edison fan. I just one way or another, it just I knew who he was and everything. I walked in this building, and it was like something was overly familiar. So I said to my wife, I have to go back there and spend a day by myself just in the buildings and just look around. Here's what I figured out. Um, I, I, as you know, I never got a job. So I, I was right. in graduate school. I came out, start my own research laboratory from scratch. Right. So 
I didn't know all the modern processes to manage a laboratory. So I'm, I'm sort of figuring out from scratch as a kid, you know, in my twenties and, and trying to work my way through. And what I ran into was a process, um, that ends up being almost identical to what Edison did. Now, I'm not saying I'm smart like Edison. I'm just saying that, uh, my, my, my invention process ended up remarkably similar. Here's how it yeah. goes. Yeah. Um, in R and D, um, you need some smart people and I'll say, I'll say well-educated people, the people you really focuses on. They got their PhD from Berkeley or, or, or MIT or whatever. Um, and that's where people put their focus. But then there's this other group that fabricates stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so, this person maybe from MIT says, Hey, you know, what if we make this vacuum chamber and heat in this way with microwaves and then we put UV light in this? And that's my idea on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Well, now it's about how fast can we turn that into something real, run our experiments and get to the next thing. So in R and D, the thinking part is seconds, minutes or hours, but the doing part is usually days, weeks, and months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you want to collapse your time of invention, you work on that second side. You, and, and you get the best technicians you yeah. can. And, and they make the, well, the, the people with the high degrees look really smart. Uh, <laughs> and, yes. And yeah, so it's how you blend those together that I think can create this really unique environment. Um, and uh, I think that's sort of money that tricks behind what we do. Now, in addition to that, we, you know, we're a real flat organization and, and right. things. Um, one of the things Edison did, there's a lot of things that people don't know about Edison's sort of management approach, but you know, he dressed down for work. He didn't mm-hmm. want to be seen as the boss at work. Mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. he was, he just sort of blended in and went from person to person. And they were nervous when, when like investors would show up, they'd be running around saying, get him cleaned up. You know, so, <laughs> you know he didn't have at work. He didn't have any errors about him, which is the right answer, right? You, yes. The more central control you have, the less your organization has that ability to just run. Yes. And, and the, you know, the harder you grab it, you know, so you've got to handle your organization really gently. He figured out, I mean, figure he did, he was the first guy to ever do build an industrial research facility. He did amazingly well with it. I mean, he's less than perfect. He, you know, you know, in recent years, there's been a lot of sort of complaints about, you know, the details of what he did, but mm-hmm. you know, he was, he was the guy out there, you know, blazing the trail. And so I give him a lot of credit for that. Right, right. Yeah, very, very interesting. All right, so let's circle back around, uh, Brian, just to, just back to seafoam for mm-hmm. just a moment. And we may have hit on all of this, and if so, that's fine. But seafoam, uh, current and future, uh, especially as where it hits on the heat treat market. And I do think you've hit most of this already, but maybe we can just reiterate some of this, where we would see seafoam. You mentioned uh, the fact that it the the mechanical properties are very strong, 
could be used for floors and furnaces, could be used for hearth piers, hearth rails, uh, could be used for the sides of furnaces. One of the issues in the heat treat market that we have to be careful about is, is you know, the guys on the forklifts who, who smash the trays into the sides of the furnace during loading and unloading. Uh, I assume there's some strength here in the sea foam that you might not have in other, especially ceramic materials, but also maybe some of your uh, even, you know, metal walls, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the foam can be made in a wide range of densities too. And, and so when you were here, I think I showed you uh, two densities that, that we mm-hmm. predominant, they predominantly manufactured today. One is 20 pounds per uh, cubic foot. The other is 30 pounds per cubic foot, but you can make it all the way up to 90 pounds per cubic foot, which at that point it is massively strong and very high temperature, um, but I think not not as insulating, right? So there's this right, trade-off right. between insulation and strength. So what we can do for some of those applications is is dial in the what is the appropriate mechanical properties um, versus thermal properties for for an application because the this technology is really robust that way. In fact, mm-hmm. one of the challenges to new materials like this is is deciding what is the thing I want to make this week because you can make, you can offer all kinds of things. And so you have to figure out what are the things you think your customers want. So if customers look at our properties and they're not exactly what they need, there's a good chance we could make some adjustments and make something, you know, with either more conductivity, less conductivity. In fact, there's the whole group of things we haven't talked about, which is which is the other end of the spectrum, the spectrum, very high thermal conductivity foams. So we have some foams we can make um, with the thermal conductivity of aluminum at one-fifth the weight. Mm-hmm. And so to me, is there a market? Does this relate to heat treaters? It's not obvious to me, and I'm not mm-hmm. down in the details of that business, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if someone listening doesn't go, no, that's exactly what we need. A carbon that's, you know, that's, that's very thermally conductive. So that's right. sort of the other end of the spectrum. Right. So you can make this, you can make your, the, the foam either thermally insulative or conductive either way. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And we can vary the electrical properties through 10 orders of magnitude from, from, uh, 10 million ohm centimeters to 0.1 ohm centimeters. So the, the question that jumps into my mind is the commercial, and this may not be a fair question for you, but let me ask it anyhow, and if, you, if you've got an opinion or thought on it, great. The commercial viability of, of these foam products, seafoam, in, in the heat treat market, I mean... You can use them as heating elements, I assume. We haven't seen, I don't think we see much. We see a lot of graphite heating elements. Uh, but heating elements, I assume, you know, for structural parts, perhaps. The one that jumps to my mind, and I think I mentioned it to you when I was there, was radiant tubes, which are, yep. you know, the, the metal tubes are somewhat, you know, they do have a life cycle. Let's just put it that way. All right. Mm-hmm. There is a, there is a, because of thermal cycling, they do tend to at some point in time crack or whatever. We have some other companies that are making uh, radiant tubes out of uh, uh, ceramic type material. 
but there's there are is- sometimes issues with breakage. So my my thinking is okay, is is it possible that perhaps we could get coal-based radiant tubes even that were are very strong yet very thermal thermally conductive? Yep, I think I think such a thing would be possible. You know, I can't tell you I could give it to you tomorrow afternoon, but absolutely, mm-hmm. I think the material can do it. I think we can we can figure out how to actually make that on volume. Yeah, I think that's that's very doable. Um, yeah, so I think the I think the application. Oh, the other things. Um, so the foam is is porous. Mm-hmm. Are there situations where you want to bring nitrogen in through the wall at really really low speeds for some reason while heating to very high temperature? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've never had that or. Or any other gas, hydrogen right. or whatever. Um, I've whatever, never had yeah. that need, but but then you know I, I'm not in that the particular marketplace that might have that need. Brian, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Doug. It was a great conversation with Brian, but he had one last zinger in his arsenal, which I'd like to share with you. As we were preparing to sign off, Brian asked if he could share one last thing about Heat Treat Today magazine. I want to add something about your magazine. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a glossy magazine. It's really nice. It doesn't have to be this nice, but it reminds me a lot of my friend Neil Ruzik. Neil Ruzik built um, the R&D magazine, which became R&D magazine, became the largest magazine in in research and development. And... um, he did really, really well. In fact, when he when when he got older, he uh, bought an island in the Bahamas, and I've been down to his island with him. So I just want to ask: Will you get your island in the Bahamas? Will you invite me down? Of course, Brian was completely shocked when I told him that I already owned my own island and that I'd be glad to fly him down on my own personal jet. And if you believe that, I do have swampland in South Florida for you. It was a great conversation with Brian, and I do want to say thanks once again to Brian for taking the time to talk. If you'd like to talk with Brian Joseph, please email me directly, and I'll put you in touch with him. My email address is doug at heattreattoday.com. And don't forget to get in touch with Dry Coolers if you're looking for any industrial cooling solutions. Dry Coolers is on the web at www. Drycoolers.com. More Heat Treat Radio is available at heattreattoday.com slash radio, or you can simply Bing or Google Heat Treat Radio. This and every other episode of Heat Treat Radio is the sole property of Heat Treat Today and may not be reproduced in part or in whole without advance written permission from Heat Treat Today. Jonathan Lloyd from Butler, Pennsylvania, has faithfully produced all Heat Treat Radio episodes since they first began back in 2016. He also composed most of the songs you hear. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm your host, Doug Glenn. Thank you for listening.